Welcome to Good Faith Reads. I'm your host, Cliff Vaughn, media producer at Good Faith Media. Good Faith Reads is a short podcast released twice a month in which we focus on one of our book authors at Good Faith Media. We've published more than 100 titles under our Nurturing Faith book imprint, and we invite you to check them out at goodfaithmedia.org bookstore. Today's guest is Callie Cawthon Friels, author of Reclamation, A Queer Pastor's Guide to Finding Spiritual Growth in the Passages Used to Harm Us. Callie is joining us remotely from Atlanta. Callie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on, Cliff. Callie, start by telling us both what the book is and what it isn't. As cumbersome as the subtitle is, <laughs> um, honestly, that's what it is. It is a queer pastor's attempt to look at the what culturally we refer to as the clobber passages to see if there are any messages of healing, of growth, um, and just good Christian living that we can take from them. Uh, what it is not is a revisiting of those passages in order to prove that they aren't about harming LGBTQ plus persons. Um, I talk about this a little bit in the d- introduction of the book. There are so many fantastic Bible scholars and pastors and lay people who have done some fantastic research in that area already. Um, they have done exhaustive word studies and translations and research of the context that those passages were written in. So for me to come along and do that work again would be incredibly redundant. Um, I also very intentionally avoided looking at those particular arguments in this book, um, because as a queer person speaking primarily to queer people in this book, I wanted to make sure I was mindful about what pieces of that I dug into, because I didn't want to unintentionally traumatize someone again or trigger them if they read this book and saw those arguments just hashed out all over again. Um, So that's what it is, and that's what it's not. I'm going to read a quote from the book that I loved particularly, and then I would like to hear you comment more about it because I thought it was so critical to the book. Here's the quote. If God is in the business of continually redeeming us, then I believe God has to be in the business of continually redeeming God's misused, misquoted, cherry-picked word. If God wasn't in the business of redeeming God's word, then God would have stopped speaking through the Bible long ago when it was used to defend slavery, when it was used to to legalize segregation, when it was used to vilify interracial marriage, when it was used to justify the Holocaust, when it is used to promote violence against women, when it is used to deny sanctuary to refugees, and now when it is used to harm LGBTQIA plus persons, end quote. So such a critical passage from the book in my view, and I would love to hear you say more about it. I think it was a quote from Rachel Held Evans, who talked about how if you go to the Bible looking for a specific thing, you're going to find that specific thing. So if you go to the Bible looking for reasons to justify the harm that you do to other people, you're going to find it, unfortunately. Um, I think sometimes we have to remember that the Bible is also a product of its time. Um, When, you know, our ancestors in the, the faith, the ancient Israelites were engaging in war with surrounding nations, you know, what does it look like for them to speak to their own people, to rally them to fight back, right? What does it look like for them to talk about how other nations are influencing them? So we get kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly all at once when we engage scripture. So I think it's critically important for us to look at the context of those stories so that we don't misapply important lessons from that time in our time. I also think it's incredibly important to talk about that work 
of redemption. You know, I, I say this in the introduction, I am a sucker for redemption. I think it is one of the most beautiful, powerful parts of the Christian narrative that God and Jesus, they look at us and even though we are broken, even though we hurt each other a lot, even though we continually do things intentionally or unintentionally that causes harm to our neighbor, God still deems us worthy of love. And I think God does great redemptive work in us in order to be able to share that love with others. But coming back to the title reclamation, it's our job to reclaim, to claim it. You know what I mean? It's our job to say, God has done this good work and I need to take it and do something with it. Um, so I think that comes to the Bible as well. Um, we have the ability to go and do this fantastic research. Like the fact that people understand biblical languages enough to do the translation work that they do, that we've got the research to dig into the context of like what the culture was like at that time, what were the cultural norms or the cultural taboos and to see how that would affect how the hearers of that time view scripture that's amazing to me and not something that um is done enough i think it's not celebrated enough to talk about how much we can gain from those experiences of researching what the context was like at that time um, so i think that's critically important to this conversation as well especially when we're talking about making rules and regulations based off of beliefs, you know, especially when we look at everything that's going on in Florida right now and in Texas. And I know that Georgia also has a don't say gay bill um, queued up, ready to go um, to, to the legislative offices. And so I think it's critically important that we have to talk about why this work of redemption and reconciliation is important, not just for our own personal edification as Christians, but how it impacts our immediate communities, both inside the church and out. How do you battle the temptation, if that's the right word, to give up on reclamation? I think that that is a deeply personal question that is going to change from person to person, depending on who you ask. For me, the practice of reclamation, it's its a no-brainer. It's something I can't not do. Um, from, a young, from a young kid, I was just enraptured by the thought of God, this being who created everything and also still loves me. And that's not something that I learned in a church. My family was not a very big church going family. I started going to church by myself in middle school because one of my best friends invited me. Right. And so just from a young age, I was just in awe about this idea that somebody who created everything and everything we see and do and touch and love uh, could also love me. And so as I grew up and started to discover my own queer identity, um, before I got to deal with the fact that I'm gay, I had to deal with the fact that there were so many people in my life who I loved who were gay and people were telling me but that the Bible said certain things about them. So I had to unpack a lot of that and become affirming of my neighbor before I could become affirming of myself. But all of that for me was a part of that practice of reclamation because I just couldn't give up this idea of God who loves me no matter what, of a God who creates a world, creates people who have the capacity to show love and compassion to others. I just couldn't let that go. So for me, 
I, I had to dig into these verses and say there there has to be something worthwhile here. Um, for other folks, the damage that these verses have done in the hands of other people may be too much for them, and that's okay. Um, I don't think the practice of reclamation has to be a mandate. Um, if revisiting those particular passages is too traumatizing for people, I just want to say like very clearly, like you shouldn't feel any pressure to have to revisit them unless you just want to. Um, they Reclaiming those messages may, may not be part of your healing journey, and that's 100% okay. Um, so I think that idea of reclamation is going to be a little bit different from person to person, but I do think broadly in Christian spaces, like as the capital C church, we kind of have to do that collectively if we hope to, as an institution, be good neighbors to those both inside and outside the church. There are some terrific popular culture references in the book, uh, the movie, The Greatest Showman, the TV show Survivor, among them. We talk about representation in popular culture. Can you talk about queer representation both in popular culture and the Bible? So can you comment on the connection between those two or the lack thereof as you see them? I will say that I come to the pop culture side of it purely as a hobbyist. Uh, I have not done any exhaustive research in representation in pop culture. I'm just a big old nerd uh, <laughs> who enjoys very nerdy things, uh, which is why I included so many pop culture references in the book. So when it comes to queer representation in popular culture, I think we're still in this phase where we've got movies like Love, Simon, which is an incredibly important movie. We've got movies like The Prom, which is also a Broadway play, which is incredibly important as well. But we're still kind of in this rut of queer representation looks like exploring queer drama. And I think those stories need to be told, but those can't be the only stories we tell, right? Like I think we will have reached a fantastic era of queer representation in popular culture where you have queer characters who are the headliners of that story, but the story is not about them being gay, right? I think the recent Marvel movie, The Eternals, does that really well, where one of the characters, Hephaestus, he's been out of like the intergalactic conflict for a really long time, and his colleagues come back to try and pull him back into it, and he says, I have a family now. I have a husband and kids, and I can't do anything that would see them get hurt. And that was such a beautiful moment because you get to see some really tender moments between him and his husband. Um, but the story is not about him being gay. The story is about this group of people trying to save the world and ultimately the galaxy. Um, and I think it's not going to be until we see more things like that, that we will really hit a beautiful moment in queer representation of popular culture. When it comes to the Bible, we kind of have to take the Bible again for, for what it is and what it's not. Um, in many ways, the Bible is also a product of the times that it was written in and the culture that it was written in. So both in the you know centuries that span between the pinning of the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Testament, the New Testament, as we uh, have it now, you know, all of those societies were incredibly patriarchal. So most of those narratives would have been written by men, for men, with the understanding that men were in charge. Um, and that kind of what it is. I mean, we see other stories every now and then about people like Esther or the Book of Ruth, and we see these powerful women stand up, but we don't have a book dedicated to the eunuchs. 
you know what I mean? Like you have to really dig to find any kind of queer representation in the Bible. And so I think if, if we read the Bible and wait for that representation to pop out to us, we will be waiting for a very, very, very long time. <laughs> and I think, um, Dr. Angela Parker in her book, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? She explores this idea of going back into the scripture to, in a sense, reclaim some of the things that were missing. Like at the very end of the Gospel of Mark, there's this line that's almost an aside, really, where it says that the disciples, some women among them, were standing far off gazing. And that kind of invites the reader to say, well, wait a second. Does that mean there were female disciples there the whole time throughout Jesus' ministry? And what does that mean when Jesus is commissioning the disciples to go out and preach good news to the poor and lay on hands and heal and do all these miracles in Jesus' name? Um, but if it's that one line, and it's so easy to overlook it, right? So if we are looking for the ways that queer narratives come up in the Bible— we have to do a little bit of that digging. We have to do a little bit of that close reading that ensures that we don't miss the little aside like that. It's unfortunate that that's the work that we have to do in order to see ourselves in the sacred scripture, um, but it's the work we have to do nonetheless. We'll be right back with more Good Faith Reads. Marvel at Pacific Coast Wells. Wonder in rainforests. Explore wild coastlands and towering cliffs. Join Good Faith Media for a unique and immersive experience in the Pacific Northwest and Olympic National Park. Enjoy engaging conversation with your small group of adventurers led by our team, which includes a journalist, historian, and theologian. Join us July the 23rd through 30th. Learn more at faithexperiences.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Reads. Today we're joined remotely by Callie Cawthon Friels, author of Reclamation, a queer pastor's guide to finding spiritual growth in the passages used to harm us. I'm Cliff Vaughn of Good Faith Media. Callie, tell us about your process of writing the book, how long it took, any particular obstacles you encountered, and also tell us about your choice to invite 10 others to pen what are called interludes in the book. The beginning of this book um, was kind of a happy accident, actually. Um, my wife and I had just moved back um, to Atlanta from St. Pete in July-ish of 2018. And I've always had this practice of in any notebook that I have, or even digitally, like on Google files or whatnot, of having a page or a folder dedicated to just random ideas that come into my head. And so this was an idea I had for a book. And so I typed up an outline, I typed up a proposal and all of this kind of stuff. Um, but I had also just started a new position in my day job because I am a bivocational pastor. So my non-ministry related job and uh, that took up a lot of my time real fast. And there were lots of hurdles and ups and downs with that. And so honestly, I kind of forgot about this idea <laughs> until we were in the middle of 2020. So around the summer of 2020, I was digging around in the files on my computer and I found this folder that said ideas. And I said, I wonder what I've put in here. And lo and behold, there was this outline that said, oh yeah, that was an idea I had. <laughs> 
Um, so over the course of the next couple months, I began reading up, reading through some commentaries, reading through some books that I hadn't read in a while, you know, some of like um, the, the classics in terms of queer Bible interpretation. So looking at a lot of like James Brownson, Matthew Vines, Kathy Bladock, all those people, um, just to kind of see where this road would go. Um, and then ultimately I wrote the bulk of it that December, the weekend before New Year's Eve, I rented a tiny house in the woods by myself. I told my wife, I was like, I just need to get away for a couple of days to write. And she said, okay, be careful, have fun. And I stayed in the little cabin and cooked out fire, uh, cooked out food on the fire and all that kind of stuff and just spent some time in nature. Um, after that, uh, the first draft of the book was a little short. And so I went back to the drawing table and that was honestly a moment where I also had to check my privilege. I realized that uh, in the first draft, there weren't any of the verses from Deuteronomy. It did not have Psalm 139. So I hadn't included verses that had been used to specifically target the trans non-binary or gender non-conforming communities. So I'm honestly thankful that the first time around the book was too short. <laughs> it gave me an opportunity to have that reflective moment and include uh, chapters about those verses later on. Um, but yeah, so after that, it was just a lot of writing and editing and asking about my wife, who also has a background in religion. We met in seminary, actually, um, just saying, hey, can you read this? What do you think? What are your thoughts? And her saying, it sounds great, or maybe tweak this. Um, seriously, this book is just as much a label, labor of love for her as it is for me. Um, but about the decision to bring on uh, 10 other folks. As I was in the middle of that second draft, that rewrite, I just kept being reminded that while I think I'm bringing some important points to this conversation, I am what but one voice. I am a gay white woman, and there are only so many things that I can point out in this discussion about what it means for us to reclaim these passages. So I reached out to 10 um, queer colleagues and friends of mine because I knew that they would have different perspectives. And they also come from all over the alphabet soup of the community. <laughs> um, so there are folks who have contributed who are, who are bi, who are non-binary, who are transgender, um, and so on and so forth. And they also are significantly it's a significantly diverse group of people. And I was incredibly humbled and blessed that they all said yes. Honestly, I reached out to 10 people expecting to get some no's and every single one of them responded, yes, I would be thrilled to be a part of this project. Um, and so that's where that idea came from. And everyone who contributes, yeah, sure, some of them are some of my colleagues from ministry, but there are also a lot of just incredibly thoughtful lay people who are involved. You know, there are a couple of folks in there who are teachers, one's a graphic designer, there's a military veteran, involved as well. And so it really just does feel like an effort from the community. And I am incredibly just humbled and thankful that they agreed to share their words because that was incredibly vulnerable of them. The prompt that I gave them was, what does it mean for you as a queer person to reclaim reading the Bible as a spiritual practice? And the way that they all responded to that question was so different and so beautiful. And I think it really elevated, like when I think about what the book was in its first draft, it was nothing like what we have now. And I think 
their words elevated to such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. In chapter six, you write, quote, what is divine certainty to God is simply holy mystery to us, end quote. Can you say more about certainty and mystery in the context of your book and this process of reclamation? Absolutely. One of the things that queer people experience a lot, um, particularly from folks who are not affirming in Christian spaces, is them telling us how we are wrong about how God created us. And they are so incredibly certain in those convictions. And it's a really challenging thing to have someone look you in the eye and say, you're wrong about what God has told you about you. God hasn't told you that. And first of all, the audacity (laughs) to claim that you have inherited this divine revelation from God about what someone else is doing, right? I do believe that God speaks to people and reveals divine revelations and whatnot, but there is an incredible amount of hubris involved in saying, I know what God wants for you. Um, as, as a pastor, I would never say that to any of my congregants because frankly, I don't know. I'm not in the prayer closet with them while they're praying with God and connecting with God and God is revealing things to them. Um, So certainty is something that queer folks have always really had to deal with, both from people who claim that they have that certainty, that we're wrong about ourselves, um, but also with constantly having to remind ourselves, like, no, we know what God has revealed to us. We know what is true about ourselves and how God made us, um, because God has revealed these things to us. Uh, So I think we kind of have to deal with both sides of that certainty there. Um, But specifically with that idea of what's divine certainty to God is simply holy mystery to us. I don't know how God made you, but God does. God has that certainty. So I can just sit and learn about the divine through you, through something that I consider holy mystery, because I will never know the full intricacies of how you are beautifully and wonderfully made. Right? That's something that's between you and God. And so I can learn from that holy mystery. And I think that's such a big part of the process of reclamation is being able to be okay with the fact that there are some things that we don't need to be certain about in order to have a meaningful connection with God or for those around us to have a meaningful connection with God. I don't need to know all the things that you and God have talked about in order to affirm the relationship that you have with God. Um, And I think that that is an incredibly important dimension of this conversation. An important note to all of our listeners, we at Good Faith Media are always accepting book proposals. Our authors engage with an experienced team of editors, designers, and marketers to produce and sell books on a variety of topics. If you have a book proposal you'd like to run by us, head on over to goodfaithmedia.org slash bookstore for more information. Callie, I'd love to hear you read one of your favorite passages from the book and then tell us why it's one of your favorites. Yeah, I'll say it was really hard to pick a short um, passage. I found one (laughs) Um, because I think there's a lot of overlay in how the chapters are structured. Um, So I actually picked a paragraph from the conclusion of the book as 
counterintuitive as that may sound to folks who are listening who haven't read the book. It's like, why are you going to tell me how it ends? Um, but I picked this paragraph because I think it's important to the conversation about why queer people are going back to church and what our stories have to offer. Right. So in the conclusion, I talk a little bit about um, the brilliant Nadia Bowles Weber. Love her to pieces. Her books are my favorite, like love her very much. But there's this one chapter in her book, Pastrix, where she talks about um, the lectionary reading for that week was the story of the Ethiopian eunuch getting baptized into the Christian church. Um, and she talks about how that passage is like perfect fodder for every progressive Christian who wants to write a sermon on the importance of diversity and inclusion in the church. She's like, of course, that's the message that anyone would preach from that. Um, but then she ends up preaching the sermon on a point that I think is an important point, but I think it's also a point that we have to be careful with. Um, the sermon that she preaches is about Philip's conversion in that moment and about the work that God has to do in Philip's heart in order to get to the point where he could baptize the Ethiopian eunuch. That's an incredibly important point, but I don't think it's a point that we can discuss without also reminding folks that queer Christians do not exist solely for the point of changing the hearts of straight cisgender Christians. In the same way that um, you know, Black Christians don't exist for the sole purpose of dismantling the racism inside of white Christians, right? Like, we don't exist for you. We exist because God loves us. Um, and so that's kind of what's leading up to this paragraph that I've chosen to read. So as important as I think Nadia's point is, our lives, LGBTQIA plus lives, don't exist solely for the spiritual transformation of straight cisgender people. In the same way that female and non-binary lives don't exist for the spiritual transformation of cishet male people. And in the same way that BIPOC lives don't exist for the spiritual transformation of white people. Those transformations are simply a byproduct of our existence, not the reason for it. LGBTQIA plus lives exist because God created them and called them good, very good. As children of the divine God, we deserve to be cherished just as we are, no more than anyone else, but certainly no less. The scriptures that we hold so dear confirm this to be true. Our guest today on Good Faith Reads has been Callie Cawthon Friels, author of Reclamation, a queer pastor's guide to finding spiritual growth in the passages used to harm us. The book, along with more than 100 other titles, is available as both a print book and ebook at goodfaithmedia.org bookstore. Callie, we appreciate you being our guest today. Thank you for having me on. This was fun.